This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello. And also with Dr. John Hostler. Hi. And today we're basically going to nerd out about one of the topics that historians love to argue about, which is periodization. Um, and we can all kind of take a crack at um, how we might define that term. Uh, I would say generally it's how historians divide time into sections or how they group events together into broader categories, if you will. Uh, gentlemen, I don't know if you want to add to or, or dispute that uh, definition. So uh, rather than kind of diving into the theory side of it, I think given our specialties, um, I, I think it might be good to start by talking about a dispute of periodization within our different time periods. Um, so Dr. Hostler, being our medievalist, we'll start with you, which is uh, kind of a fun one for people to debate, which is when did Rome end? <laughs> Yeah, that is a, um, a topic of um, spirited discussion has been for an, an awful long time. Um, there's the ones that will say that the Rome ended, that you have the, uh, the Gibbon style, Edward Gibbon's fall of the Roman Empire, 476 AD. The last emperor, Romulus Augustulus, um, kicked off the throne. And, um, and with him, Rome tumbled and all the institutions you know, were destroyed with the rise of the, the Gothic kingdom of, of Italy um, as you know, the, um, the usurper sends the crown to Constantinople and says, you know, Rome is dead or, you know, some version of that. And so Rome comes crashing down and then you have the, um, the Middle Ages that follow that or what you know, people cynically call the Dark Ages that follow that. Right. Uh, because apparently once you lose a Roman emperor, all learning goes away, all schools shut down, all roads disappear, all buildings collapse, <laughs> right? right? right. <laughs> People's ability to think and write uh, completely uh, is eradicated. So there's that, that idea of the, uh, the, the fall and that was challenged um, several decades ago now by a number of scholars um, who, who questioned it in, in, in different ways. Uh, one was the idea that there was no fall, that there was simply this, um, this transition, right? That you, you had this, this movement, you say, well, okay, so the, the imperial house is gone, sure, and the institutions of Rome hold on for a little while but start to degrade over time. Um, what does that look like? How long does that take? Um, and do you have this kind of morphing into a post-Roman world? Um, to that, which some would add and say, maybe that's morphing is not as stark as we thought it was. Uh, that Romanitas continued uh, and endured even in these barbarian kingdoms that came later for an awful long time. So in my particular field, uh, Bernard Bacharach has argued uh, very persuasively and for some um, that 
people like Charlemagne were Roman, that the, um, the idea of Roman rule continued, uh, not in the sense of, you know, th- this is a Roman emperor who is in the line of emperors, although there are some who made that claim, um, but that, um, that leaders continued to act in Roman ways and continued to um, create and uh, extend Roman institutions. Uh, and so very famously, um, he wrote a book about uh, Folk Nera, uh, Neo-Roman consuls. You're talking about a 10th century um, uh, count of Anjou who is essentially Roman in his approach to governance and his approach to life and his approach to institutions. Um, so that's that's one school, that the idea that the transition, right? Uh, and that stood as opposed to the uh, the fall scenario that, that some like to emphasize. And I'll throw military historians in as a group that kind of like that mm-hmm. uh, because they, they see it as you know, the, at the ending of the Roman experiment, right? And the creation of something new that is unrecognizable uh, to particularly professional military uh, types. Not 1453? No. Um, even though Gibbon's uh, last volume um, was um, about Constantinople and carried it to 1453, but the joke is that's the one that nobody reads, mm-hmm. right? That uh, nobody cares about it, right? Uh, because the, the Byzantines are considered something, you know, completely different. Um, so there's there's that. That's the one kind of major push, the transition talk, right? And then another one uh, is one that says, well, even when you talk transitioning, if you say fifth century something happens and you transition into something else that might even be misleading so now you're in sort of the the peter brown school of thought where it's let's not speak about um, the end of the classical world and the beginning of the medieval but let's talk about late antiquity right um so starting at about 150 is usually the date um you don't you have a roman experience but it is different than what we think of when we think of classically Roman, right? So if you are someone um, who says, well, I want to study the Romans, and that means the Punic Wars, it means Marius, right. it means Caesar, Pompey, and the Principate. Right. Um, right. Okay, that is very different than the Rome of the uh, late second, third, and fourth centuries. That's a different kind of Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, different military. Different military. Uh, Diocletian divides the empire. Um, completely different sensibility. You have um, very, you know, the Theodosian Code coming. You know that that's that's approaching. Um, you just you just have all these changes, right? And you say late antiquity is just something different. It's a bit of a different beast. And so to starkly say the Roman period ends and something else begins is misleading. Instead, it's the late antique period where uh, the six hundreds have as much in common with the three hundreds. Um, as they do with things later on because you've you've got continuity broadly. Uh, And so Peter Brown's book on late antiquity really, um, and he just released an interesting book about his own experience as a historian dealing with the people coming against him and defending his ideas and coming up with this stuff. Um, That's a very different look because now you say, well, late antiquity goes all the way till it's usually like 750. Mm -hmm. So that means late antiquity includes Islam and the coming of Muhammad, right? And the toppling of... Um, half of the Byzantine lands under the Arab right. conquests, right? Um, so those are three very different um, ways to conceive of history. And I, what I would say is they're important when you talk about periodization. It's not just an academic ex- exercise. Um, is Muhammad a, um, a character of the, the ancient world? Because in the late antique scheme, he is. 
In the old scheme, no, he's something completely different. It's an eruption. It's a, um, uh, a marked change. Um, and if you think that Islam is not a market change on the world, but part of a, co a continuous development that had been going on for centuries, that forces us to look at the rise of Islam in completely different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and I could go on and on about that. But in, but in general, that, that's kind of what you're dealing with with the fall of Rome. Um, and there are other little variations. Uh, Chris Wickham has some, some interesting ideas about uh, they've come out lately about how we characterize this world. Um, but I would say that that's kind of the bullet, right? It's um, it's not just drawing a line in the sand of one thing ends and one thing begins. Um, if you don't have that sharp break and you're talking continuity, then you have to wrestle with uh, what came before as much as what came after. Right. So, so in many college campuses, you'll have like a kind of classical history, Greek and Roman, or medieval history, which is defined as after. But right. so where so where do most college campuses kind of draw that line between a classical historian and say a medieval historian? Right, and that's tricky because it's not only how you divide the classes, but how you divide the textbooks that you're using. Yeah. So when does the when does the classical and ancient world end? Um, most people will, will you know, the textbooks will break it off at, at about 500. Uh, you know, in that period where the last Roman emperor, because you have to end at some point so you can have the class on the next thing that comes, right? But I know I was trained, and I would suspect most medieval historians out there, if you were to take their class on early Middle Ages, I always started with Diocletian. I started in 284. Um, and that's how, I, that's how I was taught when I went through, and that's how I do it. Mm -hmm. There are very few medievalists, I think, who would pick it up and say, okay, starting in the year 500, we all go back to ancient Rome, and we kind of do that overlap piece anyway. I suppose it would be like built to get to, you know, what you specialize in. No one starts in World War II classes in 1939. You just don't, right? You go back to inner war, if not to the end of World War I, to set the stage yeah. with Versailles and those sorts of things. And so medievalists do the, the same thing. So where the class ends and begins is, I would say, is not where the historians do. Uh, we jump in and we kind of make it what it needs to be. And as you know, you, for you, Doctor Abel, you um, talk about the, um, you know, the long centuries, yeah, right? Yeah. The long 18th century, the long 19th century. You know. Yeah, and that's a good transition into kind of what I do, which is as an early modernist. Um, two good debates. One of them is when does the medieval period end and the early modern period begin? Right. Uh, I think 1500 tends to be the cut line simply because that's an easy date. Um, a lot of people who do what I do start in 1453 with the fall of, of Constantinople. Um, but you also have this weird field in between, which is usually referred to as Ren Ref, uh, Renaissance and Reformation, where you have kind of this late medieval, early modern kludge that can go as early as 1200 and can go as late as 1650. I mean, I know plenty of early modernists who would kind of fudge and say the early modern period begins in 1650. So you, you're right to point out we have these liminal spaces. And I think to people who study American history, this, this is probably kind of odd because these liminal spaces for us are often centuries long. Um, so the liminal space between the end of Rome and the beginning of the medieval period is longer than America has existed for a lot of people, right? Uh, but you, you bring up a, a kind of a funny periodization debate when we talk about long centuries. Um, so people familiar with early modern history and historiography are probably familiar with the concept of the long 18th century, which starts in, in the late 1680s and ends in 1815. Um, and, and the reason that that's a problematic periodization is because of who it's designed for. 
Um, that is a purely British construct. It's about British history, British figures, and important events in British history. The beginning of it being what the British call the Glorious Revolution, what they are now beginning to acknowledge was the successful invasion of Britain by the Dutch under William and the kind of the marrying of the, the, the literal marrying of the British and Dutch crowns um, in the 1680s produces the Bill of Rights, 1689, and it ends with the fall of Napoleon and the conquest of the French by the British in the Second Hundred Years' War, which then inaugurates the Pax Britannica, right? Um, and one of the reasons I don't like this periodization is because it, it, it applies to Britain, but it applies to no one else. It makes no sense in any other context or for any other country. So for the French, uh, which is what I study as a French historian, the, the, the long century is the period from either Louis XIV's rise, his, his crowning in 1643, or his taking the reins of government in the 1660s, until the revolution begins in 1789. And that's what Voltaire called the great century, the Grand Siècle. It's the reigns of the last three Louis, or if you, if you want to be snarky, just Louis XIV and Louis XV. Um, and in that case, that's a, you know, that's a periodization that works. I often refer in my studies to the short 18th century, which is 1715, Louis XV's death, to 17, let's call it 1785, when Louis XVI's government really starts to fall apart. Um, so for French scholars, that makes a whole lot of sense. But that doesn't make any sense for scholars of Italy or scholars of Poland, because Poland, you know, Poland essentially starts to end in 1775, right? And so I think that for, for me, the reason periodization is so important um, to kind of get at some of what you were talking about in your field is it, it tells us who we are centering, both who in terms of people and who in terms of cultures, countries, states, whatever. Um, and, and we have to be careful not to apply one model that fits one country in one time to other places and times, or worse yet, make it universal. Um, and I have to, I have to fault my uh, British history colleagues for this, because British historians are notorious for taking British-centered models and making them universal. That works in the 19th century, because Britain does control a good chunk of the world. But it doesn't work pretty much in any other time, right? Actually, if you talk about the English Dark Ages, which English scholars still do, Medievalists have largely set aside the Dark Ages, you know, uh, idea, but English scholars still talk about the period between the end of Roman control and the rise of a coherent polity of England in the terms of the Dark Ages. That, that still kind of works for England, but it doesn't work for anybody else. But again, I have to fault uh, some, some of my um, British-focused colleagues for applying those models universally. And I think we have to be careful of building universal models that often obscure or sometimes even outright get wrong uh, the, simply the facts of other cultures, states, peoples, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, <laughs> we're focusing on Europe. And there are lots of European models that don't apply to non-European spaces. I was actually going to ask you, building off that both question, which is, uh, so John, you're a medieval uh, historian uh, and other... Dr. Abel, you're a other John. Uh, you're a you're a early modern scholar. Mm -hmm. In your disciplines, though, does that extend to other parts of the world, such as Asia? Uh, and uh, Asia is a very broad concept, like East Asia. Does 
do are there medieval East Asian scholars, or is that something entirely different? So I'll take it first because my answer is easy. Uh, I study the period of European exploration and then colonization, or if you're in one of the colonized spaces, you probably call it exploitation, right? So it's fair often to refer to the, the rest of the world in European terms, because in my period, the Europeans are actually going into those spaces and imposing their views and identities on those spaces. So, you know, by, by 1650, most of what is now Canada kind of follows the rhythms of, of Europe, because if for no other reason than a lot of the people who lived there have since died of, of you know, post-contact diseases. That's not true in India. India, China, places that are not colonized before 1800, they don't follow those rhythms, so they deserve their own... Um, they deserve their own kind of centering. And I will say that the, the colonized spaces also deserve to be taken on their own terms and not purely in European. Um, but I think for my period, it's a little easier to kind of have more universal um, periodization than it is for earlier periods. Um, Doc Hostler. Yeah, it's, this is a huge matter right now in medieval studies. Um, I think everything you say about, you know, British scholars, French scholars, these sorts of they have in the past imposed their their own timelines on things, right? Yeah, we're all chauvinists in some way, right? Yeah, and and not all of not all of it is the design of scholars. I mean, we the reason we medievalists dislike dark ages so much. I mean, there, there's there's so many reasons, and it's recently been um, a live issue on Twitter the last two weeks that people have been putting memes up, and everybody's been arguing about this, right? But you know, the the, the person who coined the phrase is Petrarch, um, who declared himself the greatest poet since ancient Rome, and that everything before him, uh, you know, was was dark and, and dimsel, and we kind right. of that medium avum, and we, we we carried with it. Um, so there's a distinct notion, and it's been out there in medieval studies for quite a while, that much of our history is Eurocentric, mm -hmm. uh, that we are obsessed with studying just a few places in Western Europe and presuming that's what makes medieval. And so there's been this big push to globalize medieval studies, medieval global history, um, which so you know, what is going on in medieval India? medieval Japan during the Kamakura Shogunate, right? Um, what's going on in, in West Africa at the time? Or China, you know. which you can argue looks like medieval Europe centuries before medieval Europe looks like medieval Europe. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you're talking about the, the Song or the Tang dynasties, you know, mm -hmm. the, these things, these are the, the medieval dynasties of China, right? So this has become very popular uh, and people are trying to globalize the period. There's a lot of courses have been turned to consider the global Middle Ages. Uh, there are some risks with that approach. Um, the trouble is it's been politicized. And so pointing out some of these risks is sometimes met with a lot of rancor, especially on social media, because you're perceived to be, you know, if you're against global medieval history, right? It's a, um, I, I personally think it's it's a worthwhile thing to pursue, but, but there are issues, right? Mm -hmm. um, do the Chinese identify um, this middle period the way that Europeans do, mm -hmm. right? It's legitimate to ask the question, say, what are the historians of the Ming dynasty, right? What are they saying about their earlier history? Do they conceive of this as a time of, of terrible things, right? Um, what do the Japanese consider? I mean, traditionally, uh, when the Kamakura Shogunate gives um, rise to the, the Tokugawa, that's generally seen as kind of the moving from the medieval to the, the more early modern Japanese experience, right? Um, 
Okay. Um, does that fit nicely with what we like to talk about with, with medieval things? Um, when you look at um, sub-Saharan Africa, there's some affinities that you can you can definitely point to and say, well, they connect very well to the Arab experience and how um, how you have the, the, the Muslim march across West Africa, across um, the Maghreb, down into past the Horn of Africa and the Swahili coast. Yeah, there's there's some affinities there. But drawing big generalizations across all of those things is is tricky. And it has led people into some problematic mm-hmm. conclusions. Um, the trouble is, is everybody wants to be inclusive and bring in the larger experience because we know just talking about Britain and France and the Vikings and, you know, in Germany and Italy, it's not enough. Right. Um, we we still routinely neglect East European medieval history. It, it just it's still like the one place where um, where it doesn't get included as much um, in the Balkans have been doing better lately mm-hmm. southeastern uh, medieval history uh, but I think still Bulgaria Romania you know and um, those sorts of places are waiting for their due Poland is coming back into vogue right now mm-hmm. which is great I know a number of people are working on medieval Polish things same true of the early modern period yeah so it's so I think it's a good thing to try to do that. But at the same time, if you're imposing periodization constraints on it, right, well, then where do you draw the line? So you talk about, for example, 1453. Okay, so if we're going to end the Middle Ages with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, right, um, what does that year mean to China? Right. 1453, right? Now, it used to be the, the argument was, and there's still some people who uphold this, that, well, the shutting down of Constantinople puts a crimp on east-west trade, and so it, it, it involves China that way. You force the Portuguese around Africa and then, then west, yeah. <coughs> right, their ships are going to go around the Cape of Good Hope instead of you know going across the land. Oh, okay. But in that case, it's, well, it matters to China because someone in another uh, part of the world puts a crimp on their money. Right. That's why it matters to China. percent change in their trade. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure that's a China-centric right. view. Is that what the Chinese are saying, or is that what scholars of um, the Mediterranean are saying, right? right. Um, so then you say, well, okay, maybe 1453 is not a good example. The one I favor, the one I tend to like, and it's got its problems, is 1492. Oh, okay, well, that's when Columbus sails the ocean blue, right, and, you know, opens up the rest of the world. And, of course... Right away, my Viking colleagues are like, the Vikings found North America. Yes, I know, right? Uh, but but nobody knew that they did, right? right. And um, we now, we're now thinking maybe Polynesians did too. <laughs> right, maybe, you know, who knows, right? It was that book about the Chinese discovering right, America, right? right? right. But, it, but say you pick that. Okay, that seems to me kind of an important moment where broadly the world starts to you know, realize, at least in Europe, that this other part exists. Well, obviously... That's not nearly as important a date to what to the uh, the Mughals in India, right? To um, to um, Sub-Saharan yeah. Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. That doesn't matter to them now. It will matter later on with effects. Right. So, are we drawing our line based on the effects that will come because of what happened in that date, or because something important happened in that date? Uh, right. I tend to think Columbus's voyages are really important. And I said, just for what it does in the date, that's where I like to break it, right? But there are some who, you mentioned the British, they come back and they're like, no, 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 no. It's 1509 when Henry VIII becomes king because he's the first early modern king. And Or some want to push it further and say, 1517, let's talk Martin Luther. Let's talk Reformation. That's the big change. Well, it's the big change in Europe. 
But it's not the big change for the Ottomans. The Ottomans, their big change was, well, maybe it was Constantinople. Maybe it's the Siege of Rhodes, right? I mean, yeah. who knows? So, Siege of Vienna. So I worry about this 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 global project, right? To tie everything together and do these global histories. And I've got some friends who are trying to do this, and I get it. And I think it's a worthy endeavor, but I think it is fraught with peril because at some point you're going to draw a line someplace, um, and one society or another is going to be able to say that's not important to us, and that is a fill in the blank centric view of history. Yeah, and I also think it run, it runs the risk, ironically, of by trying to be inclusive of simply recolonizing the colonized people, of saying, well, how can we shove Indian history into a European construct? Yeah, and, you know, I taught for years, I taught the World History Survey, right? Mm-hmm. And um, for 12 years, I taught thousands of students in that World History Survey. And China and India are always kind of the interesting ones. And, and I tried to approach it from once, and, and it works fairly well. I said, well, maybe maybe Islam is the big theme that ties things together because Muslims are in uh, North Africa. They have relations with Europe. They're in Europe, right? right. Um, they're in sub-Saharan Africa, and they're in India, right? So, okay, maybe it's the Islamic part. What do you do about China? Right. Oh, well, Ibn Battuta took a, you know, maybe he went to China. China ended up being this peripheral thing, and so it became, my old chair used to joke about this, People would teach world history, mm-hmm. and what it was was Western Civ plus India and China. Yep. yep. Um, because, well, how do you, what are the themes that draw them together? Trade. Okay. Yep. Trade ties them together. Anything else? Well, the religions are different. And, whatnot. and you end up in all kinds of problematic places. So I think the endeavor is great, and I like the idea of we've got to bring in these other histories because the story of the world is not the story of Northwest Europe. Mm-hmm. Got it. But actually doing that right, right and synthesizing across geography and period in those broad strokes and finding, I have not yet found a textbook that does it well. Yeah, and how do you bring in the great civilizations of the Americas, right? How do you talk about the Teotihuacan at the same time you're talking about, you know, the late Franks? Right. Yeah. Right. Or something as simple as World War II. When did World War II start? Well, so that's, the, that's yeah. where I was going next for you, Dr. Nance, to, to wrap in the modern. Um, and that's the exact question I was going to ask you. It seems like a dumb question, but explain why it's not a dumb question. Well, are you talking about when the Japanese invade China in 1937? Or are you talking about the invasion of Manchuria, which is earlier? Are you talking about the German invasion of Poland, which is September 1st, 1939? Which is the traditional Western European American start date. Or is there the German invasion of the Soviet Union, which is June 21st, 1941? Is there the American entry or the or the very traditional American approach, which is 7 December 1941, which is Pearl Harbor, or is it something to do with the Finns? Or when does your country join? Because uh, these countries are going to look at these in very different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And now some of the, you can say, oh, well, they're joining larger conflicts. So typically I split it into the three, kind of the big three, which is you have the war going on in Asia, or the big three or big four, again, depending on how you want to cut this apart, right? You have the Chinese-Japanese war going on. You have the German war against the Western alliance, number Mm -hmm. two. And it doesn't become the world war until America joins, right? Although people start calling it a world war about that point because of the things going on. Then you have the German war against the Soviet Union. 
co-belligerence with a common thread, but the Soviets are fighting a very different war than the Western Alliance, and they are only loosely connected. Right. And then you have the War of the Western Alliance against Japan. Mm-hmm. Four very different wars with four very different start dates, and yes, they often, there's overlap, but it's hard to kind of tie all that together, yeah. and it really depends on where you are in the world for that uh, for that period, and it goes for the same period. We talked about the interwar period. Well, for the Spanish, the interwar period was the period of the war. Right. Uh, so it gets challenging. Uh, it it only works depending on where you happen to be. Yeah, and I think uh, we've all kind of uh, tumbled onto one of the great problems of of historiography, which is that historiography is largely dictated by the language and the culture that's writing it. Right. So we are talking about this in English. We are heir to first the British, then the American traditions of historiography. Uh, so they're necessarily going to weight those experiences, right? And, and uh, you know, I, as I said earlier, in my field, it, it's often a fight with the British historiography for other people and other uh, topics to, to find a space within that and to say, no, just because it works for the British doesn't mean it works for everybody, right? And, and one of the things we do have a tendency to fight, and to circle back to something Dr. Hossler said earlier, is simply the availability of sources. Uh, first of all, are they physically available? Can you physically access these sources? And then second, do you have the language specialties to access them, right? Um, I know something that my field is, is subject to a great deal uh, is that essentially, it, to be an early modern European historian, you know English, or you know English plus a Romance language or German, right? Which shuts you out of a whole lot of Eastern Europe, which shuts you out of a whole lot of, you know, how, it depends how far you want to look at it, colonial spaces, North Africa. Um, I can imagine for the medieval period that's even worse because you kind of also have to know Greek and Latin, right? Right. I mean, yeah, to, to do it right. And then if you're going to bring in this global medieval, mm-hmm. right, um, you know, how many people out there can read Ge'etz, right? right? If you want to do Ethiopian things. Um, do you have the Arabic skills mm-hmm. to, um, to confront not only Levantine history, mm-hmm. um, but also West Africa? And not just Arabic, but, you know, the, the, the Arabic of the early Islam years right. compared to the refined Arabic of today. And, you know, it's, I mean, it takes you interesting places because there's a story I used to tell my students um, about Timbuktu. There were there's a very famous story about one of the archivists saving um, all of these manuscripts from Timbuktu, these original manuscripts from um, the various militant groups that are looking to blow them up and things. Right? They're dominantly in Arabic. Right? They've most of them have never been copied, never been edited. There there's thousands of them. Just all of these original documents, just begging for people to study. Mm-hmm. But you have to have the Arabic skills. You also have to have an interest in West African history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't have those two things, and then, and then you have to the ability to travel and, and do a lot of transcription right. of, these, of these sources, right? That requires a, a definite skill set. Um, and it's not one that a lot of Western universities are prepared to equip their students with, mm-hmm. right? So there are some places where you can go, like the University of Michigan, where you know, any, any language you want to study, they got it. You know, they're, they're kind of known for that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you say, say, well, I want to, you know, I'd like to do a PhD in medieval history, and I was able to um, get into, um, you know, this university or this, you know, well, what languages do they offer at that university? Mm-hmm. 
do they offer West African languages? Do they offer East African languages? Do they offer Hindu dialects? Um, Hindi, I'm sorry, dialects. Um, very often, no. So you say, well, where can I go to right. do that? Do I have to go to SOAS in London? Maybe, yeah. right? Can you get into those places? And so instead you end up saying, well, it's the emphasis of the department is this. The languages that are taught are this. The professors are skilled in this. So I guess I'll do this. Right. Um, and you and you end up with um, you know leaving those areas of study to people who are in the places in the world that have that. So I think of Central European University, right? And the great scholars, they turn out studying all this Eastern European history. They have people equipped with those languages right. to do so. Um, good luck finding all those languages taught in more than a handful right. of places, and especially now, and it's a whole other subject, as as language courses are increasingly cut from universities. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to find harder. a Latin program at a state school anymore. Yeah, even Latin. Yeah. Right? Just Latin. You'd think that would be, you know, good yeah. luck. Right. Good right. luck. Yeah, and another point, uh, Central European, European University is a good example of it. Uh, we in the Anglophone world add a burden to people who study at a school like that because not only do they have to learn the languages they study, they also have to learn English so they can communicate it to the rest of us who don't want to bother. Yes, and there's a persistent complaint, and I, I appreciate it, uh, based on you know, these communities of, of native scholars who are cranking out all kinds of interesting things in Czech and in Romanian, right? You know, and, and, and you say, and, and it's, unfortunately, it's inaccessible to these, these broader, um, these other communities, and I would say arguably probably more influential communities because who, you know, who runs the major printing houses of the world, right? Where are they based? Where is, you know, these things generated, right? Um, and the scholarship gets, it gets lost, it disappears, and you, you literally don't know about it. You say, well, I'd, I'd love to learn Romanian and go out there and, and read this stuff. I don't have time to learn Romanian, right? Um, I'd love to get, you know, ask a graduate student or a colleague to translate things for me. Okay, but that's carries its own problem and financial, you know, um, requests, which are completely understandable. You know, yeah, I'm not going to translate this book for you yeah, for right. free. I'm, I'm a busy person too, right? And so it makes it hard. And there's different reactions to that, of course. Now you could, and we've talked about this before, John, right? Um, in the eyes of, you know, some French scholars, the answer is, well, I just don't read anything in English, yeah. right? You know, it's, uh, I, I, I mean, it, if I refuse to accept that English has become the lingua franca of the world, and I'm, I'm just not going to do it. And so there's lots of examples of, you know, French history books with no citations to Anglophone scholarship at all. Yeah. That's obviously not the right answer. Um, but, but you're right, it's um, as you start considering, you know, what you're talking about, Bill, right? If you're just saying, well, we've got to consider, you know, what do the Chinese consider the beginning of the war? And, you know, what are the Russians doing? So it really does require, if you're going to engage with it, how's your Russian? Right. How's your Chinese? Or do you have access to, at least are there translations or, or places you can go to get information? Because you're really not going to understand why, why they feel that way. Unless you read them in their own words. Yeah. You're just not going to do it. Well, and to, to circle back to what you were talking about, Dr. Nance, there's two problems for you. One of those is, I mean, we're we are sitting in a, a conference room in 2023. The Russo-Ukraine war is happening. So if you want to study World War II from the Soviet or Chinese perspective, good luck getting into the archives, right? Well, and that is the problem. It's like uh, most famously uh, Dr. Uh, Dr. Glanson House uh, Got into the Soviet archives and, and what they ten-year period where they were open in in the in the in the nineties yeah. and what they discovered is is that much of what we knew about the Soviet German conflict was 
completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they've actually made a career out of basically rewriting the history of the uh, Soviet-German conflict. Mm-hmm. And they call it that. They don't really call it the Eastern Front because that centers, of course, Germany. And they're saying that, no, this actually is a conflict that was... Deserve, there were two sides to that conflict. Well, and, and the Chinese might also object to Eastern Front. Correct. Uh, you know, how far east do you want to go? Right. Uh, so there's all sorts of challenges within that. And, they, and uh, of course, uh, Dr. Glantz speaks uh, or reads Russian and is able to translate that. But that's one of the reasons why there's not much really known about the Chinese conflict. Uh, go to Vietnam. We are just now really... In the past 20 years and more towards the later half of that 20 years starting to get good scholarship coming out about the Vietnam War told from the North Vietnamese perspective. There's been good scholarship about the Vietnam War, don't get me wrong, but we're finally actually able to get into the Hanoi archives with people who speak and read Vietnamese. Yeah, and luckily while some of the people are still alive to talk to about yes, it. Yes, uh, mm-hmm. so, we're, we're, so we're able to get that. Now for you two gentlemen, it's a completely, you are at the mercy of not only who wrote, but what has survived. Yep. So that has uh, created some problems for, y- for y'all as well. And the, the second thing I wanted to talk about with relation to what you study in modern history is, for us, for the, the, the two pre-modernists in the department, uh, periodization is a matter of debating existing models, for the most part. I mean, you can come up with a new model, but generally it's about, okay, where do we, where do we put this date? For a modernist, history is unspooling. So for a, for a modernist, you not only have to worry about periodization as it exists, but how do you re-periodize as we move forward? So one of the things that I ran into, and, and like Dr. Hostler, I've spent a, long, a lot of time teaching surveys, U.S. history surveys, there's a temptation to just stop the U.S. History Survey in 1945 or 1970 or 1980, whenever you want to do it. But you can't do that in a world in which we are now in the 2020s, right? You can't stop U.S. History 70 years before the present. So how do you as a modernist deal with adding decades and re-periodizing? And that becomes a problem because where do you, which you guys have talked about, which is where do you snap that chalk line, right? which is for many, many years, uh, when I taught at West Point, History of the Military Art, uh, it's flagship military history course. We stopped in the 1990s. Now, that sort of made sense when I was a cadet in 19, from 1998 to 2002. Right. Um, and That was 25 years ago, right? <laughs> just, just a while ago. Um, and then uh, and it even sort of made sense when I went back to teach uh, from 2011 to 2014. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what's happening now. Mm-hmm. Now it becomes a bit of a problem because what you're seeing is is that the 90s was kind of this weird bubble in mm-hmm. world history, whereas you point out the Soviet archives were opening, and it's uh, the 90s is, can almost be kind of construed as its own separate era. Mm-hmm. Now the question is 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 it decade? As I have the medievalist and the early modernists sitting there rolling their eyes at me, saying a decade is not an era in of itself, right. uh, as you guys deal in centuries. So we're going to have to deal with. So where does the 90s fit into this larger uh, into this larger schema? Mm-hmm. What is more fascinating about the modernist era is is that, and we were actually talking about this a little bit before we even started recording, is that 
you look at the 1990s as its own separate thing. However, when you zoom out to the scale of centuries, will the 90s truly be that unique? Mm-hmm. And that's what I think uh, is fascinating about your about y'all's eras is, is you know you can deal down you can dial down into the 1370s. Mm-hmm. Just going to pick mm-hmm. a random decade, and I'm sure that that was a very unique decade compared to say the 1360s or maybe even the 1330s. But it's finding the sources to back that up and the detail to back that up, which is in the modern era what we have. We're almost awash in it. Uh, And, John, I'm going to pass it off to you because I I know that uh, there's probably more out there than we give credit. Oh, there there absolutely is. Um, I think any pre-modernist could – you give them – a decade or even a year, and they could teach a semester-long course on it, mm-hmm. on a year. I, I mean, I've, I've had um, colleagues in the past who have courses at, at university like 1968, so, right? You know, the, the, the whole semester they spend the year, you know, 1968 is just a really important year. We're going to do everything, and, and it clearly was a very important year, right? Um, I could do that about any number of years mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages, right, if given the time to do it. So I think anyone could do that. I think what modernists are going are gonna to be facing as time marches on is they're going to – soon deal with the frustrations, if they're not already, that, that John and I already have, right? Where you are given centuries to cover and you don't have enough time. Now, when you could cut it off at 1945, you could say, well, I start with the Revolutionary War and I take it forward. And really, you're not even doing 200 years. Yeah. And you've got 15 weeks in a standard college course to cover that. That's that's easily doable, right? Um, what happens when that becomes 400 years? Right. Down the road. Oh, now you have to make the same um, choices John makes because he has to say, well, if I'm going to do early modern to the advent of the modern world, where do I start my early modern? Where do I cut it off? Um, and as time goes on, those who are comfortable in modern history, not this generation, but maybe the next generation, especially the one after, what do you start to cut? What do you start to get rid of? Do you say, you know what? Um, Jacksonian America, I, I think I'm giving it 10 minutes because I just don't have the time to, I would have dealt with it for a longer right. period, right? And that unfortunately is, it's going to fall down on some, um, what I would say are very important subjects and very treasured subjects in that. So what do you do when you no longer have all the time you wish? Caveat, no historian always has all the time they wish, right? But but when you have generous amounts of time to talk about antebellum, civil war, slavery, um, you can get, you know, you know, Jim Crow South, you can really get into this in, in fine detail. What happens when you've been given a day? Well, it, and, and, it's, and, it's and there's a skill to teaching that way, and it's one that pre-modernists know. We know how to do it. I would have my week on China. All of ancient China. I had a, I had a method down to teaching all of ancient China in one week, which is, I told the students, ludicrous, insane, stupid that I have to do this, but I have to do this, right? right. Modernists increasingly, they'll have to figure out, they'll have to learn those skills. So to, to, and it's no. already starting. Yeah, I think so. It's already starting because now, like like uh, Abel's saying, right, you, you can't break it in 1945 anymore. I think you at least have to carry it to the fall of the Berlin Wall and yeah. you know the, the ending of the Cold War after. Um, you've just added four more decades. Say, well, how could I possibly cover Khrushchev and Kennedy and Vietnam and the Reagan years and everything? Well, good luck. You're going to have to figure it out. Well, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, one of the turning points in my teaching career was having been you know, of reasonable age when 9-11 happened. I remembered it. And I distinctly remember the point in my classes when students stopped remembering it because they were too young. Because to them, it wasn't life, it was history. Well, and that's, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's almost 60 years after the end of World War II. Uh, to, yeah. to give a little anecdote where I learned this lesson as a grad student, uh, I had the, the great fortune of being a teaching assistant for an amazing Near Eastern scholar. He was actually a linguist. 
So he would sit in class and he would read these cylinder rolls from you know Cyrus and the Achaemenids, or he read all the languages. Mm-hmm. And he made an offhanded comment in class one day about the Kassite Babylonians. Uh, and the Kassites are these kind of these semi-mysterious people who ruled over the, the, the Persian Gulf area for about 400 years. And he just kind of casually tossed them off and said, well, they're interesting, but we don't have time to cover them. And when you get to the point where you're leaving out a civilization that's a keystone of the period and lasted for 400 years, but you can't cover it, then you begin to understand the problem of covering long periods well, of history. Yeah. It's an interesting uh, anecdote. I was teaching cadets, and this was uh, 2012, 2013, and we, had, we were finishing up our survey military history course at HI-302, and we got to the, and it was a colloquially called the, it was all, it was just generally known as the 90s lesson. It basically covered, uh, I think the Desert Throne was maybe its own lesson, which is a luxury at this at that particular stage in the game. But then it was like Somalia, Kosovo, uh, the, the all the Balkan Wars. And I just kind of, oh, you guys, this will be an easy lesson. We've got an hour to cover it. You guys all lived this, right? Yeah. And all the students looked at me. And because I did live it, I was, uh, I mean, I wasn't old. I was in the fourth grade, I was in the fifth grade uh, during uh, Operation Desert Storm. But to me, it was lived history. My, my father had deployed to Operation Desert Storm. I had watched the Yugoslavian Civil War unfold on national TV. Yeah. And then I sit there and I realized that the students had no conception <laughs> of this. And the, right. uh, I've turned out the oldest of them had been born in like 1991. Yeah. Yeah, time, you know, time goes by really fast. And I think, um, you know, just I saw this, I just mentioned this, I saw this meme on Facebook the other day. Um, we are as far today, um, what was it, 2023, 53 years ago was 1970. Yep. Right? Um, 53 years before 1970 was 1917. Yep. Right? So we're as far, you know, 50 years from World War One. So you sit there and you say, wow, that's... You know, when you think about things like that, but I think what's going to happen is increasingly historians are going to have to do another thing that pre-modernists do. Um, you don't have enough time to do the chronological um, swim through all the things you think were important in a given place. So like, can you can you do United States history in 15 weeks or 30 weeks? Uh, the more time marches on, I think you'll you might see more thematic treatments where you say, you know, blank in history, um, in American history, and it gives the instructors some, it's, it's a little bit more like what we do here at CGSC. What are the things in warfare that we think the officers need to have going out? That means a lot of stuff gets covered. We make these jumps. Whatever happened to so-and-so war? Yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to do the war in Crimea. Um, we, we don't have time. And, and, and our emphasis, it's not just that we don't have time, but given that we know we don't have time, we've chosen to go along these thematic lines. Which brings me back to a point so. that I wanted to ask both of you, actually, because we would talk about all the challenges of periodization. So why have it? So why the, is it just language vocabulary, or is there actually a utility there? Well, I, I'll start by answering it from the perspective of the people I study. So I study the Enlightenment. Um, and I, I like to say that the, the quintessential Enlightenment thinker is not a philosopher, even though we think of you know the Rousseaus and the Voltaires. Uh, the quintessential Enlightenment philosopher uh, thinker is Carl Linnaeus, the taxonomist, because the Enlightenment is not people thinking for the first time, right? It's not even people thinking systematically for the first time, because as my medievalist colleague is nodding, you know, Aquinas did that. 
uh, the, the Enlightenment is about categorization of knowledge. For the first time, there is more knowledge than any person in Western Europe can hope to wrap their minds around. So you have to be able to categorize it and say, this relates to other knowledge, so if I learn the type, then I kind of have an idea of what the knowledge is. And also, because we're talking Western Europeans, we're talking a lot of white dudes, this is important, this is not. Um, and usually the this is not is things that look less like the people doing the study, um, which is a point I'll circle back to when we wrap this up. So it's periodization is simply the way our brains work. Our brains work by putting information into slices and kind of painting around the corners rather than looking at all the detail. Um, the, way, the way I explain this to students is, if you think about your morning commute, you don't actually see what's on your morning commute most mornings because your brain does not have the processing power to take all that information in as new. Instead, what it does is it kind of assumes that everything is going to be normal and just fills it in from memory, which is why you generally can't remember most of what you see on your commute unless it's new. If there's a wreck, then you'll remember it. So periodization is simply the, the, the biochemical process of information storage applied to history. Um, we need periods, we need periodization because we cannot conceive of all of the events and more importantly, why all the events matter and how they relate to each other without it. We often default to easy to remember numerical years because they're easy to remember, right? That's why, you know, historians love to quibble over but you my know, students say remembering dates are hard. Right. No, that's, that's a hard thing. <laughs> but it's easier to remember 500 than it is 476, or 1500 right. than it is 1453, right? Um, and I, I always used to tell students in response to that complaint, I don't, I don't care if you memorize dates, but you got to get them in the right order. Yes. Right? Um, so for me, periodization as a positive um, endeavor, and I'll talk about it as a negative endeavor in a minute, but as a, as a positive endeavor, it is simply a reflection of the way we think. So therefore, it will always be necessary. Yeah, that's good. I think I, I would agree. The, I think for me, there's a practicality associated with historical study, right? And, and I would say not just for scholars, but even just comprehending the world that has come before, uh, you have to organize it for lay people to understand. And just think of the family going to the museum, right? And you go into the Renaissance wing and you, you, you go into the um, um, uh, mannerism wing, and, you know, these, these sorts of things, right? You have to be able to understand this came before this, this happened at a certain time, big things were happening in the world at this time. This sculpture was in ancient Greece and that was in this period. Uh, if you blend everything together as just one timeline, people will not be able to have reference points they can't talk to each other about it. Um, you can't assess the importance of things. Um, dating is really important. And I think it's what I would tell my students. I said, you think dates aren't important. Um, is, the, is your birthday important? Well, yeah, my birthday is important. They said, well, what if I were to say that you were born in this year instead? Well, you would be upset. You wouldn't like that, right? And you can look back across your life, and there were markers of things you did when you were this old, this old, this old that really matter. Anniversaries matter. Birthdays matter. Um, we're applying it to the timeline writ large. You have to do that. But I think that for scholars and for historians, the practicality of it is not just historians, art historians and literature types, and uh, even people in psychology and sociology, all these other fields, physics. Mm -hmm. um, you can't specialize in everything. 
historians, we value generalists. It's great to have somebody, and I think that's one thing we have at DMH that is, is pretty strong. Not the whole timeline of history, but you pick somebody in the hallway, most of them are conversant and can tell you what's going on in the world in the 17th century, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, right? They have a good general sense, and they may even have enough knowledge to be dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. um, as, as Dr. Faulkner likes to say, right? Um, but you can't specialize in all of it. Right. You just can't. Nobody can. There, there is nobody who has mastered the scope of history. And so it is useful to have these divisions because there are different skill sets required for different periods in history. The way I study history, the way I understand medieval societies, it's, it's not something that someone studying the world wars would be comfortable with, would be familiar with, or frankly, would need. Yeah. Right? You can very competently study the world wars and not really understand the discrete differences between various religious professions in, in Western Europe. You can. And obviously, religion is an important part of the World War II story. It's there. I just read an interesting book about the American GI experience, right, mm -hmm. uh, with religion. Um, so obviously, it's important. But it's not like the Middle Ages where religion is imbued into absolutely everything. Right. And you cannot understand warfare in the period if you don't understand Christianity and Islam. You, you just can't. Right. Um, you would be, it would be a very poor knowledge base. Um, and so periodization helps us to understand this. Say, look, if you're going to do medieval history, look, get your Bible out. You need to know what's in the Bible. You just need to know what's in the Bible. I'm sorry, you really need to. Whereas somebody doing the Vietnam War... I, I don't I don't think you need that. It's it's great if you have it. It's an additive skill. It could help in certain things. Mm -hmm. um, same with the Civil War. Absolutely. And I've been learning more about the religious overtones of the Civil War. They are there. They are pronounced. They are important. That said, I think you can understand Civil War battles without understanding at a, at a deep level uh, the nuances of Christianity. I would argue you can't do that with the Crusades. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. And if you try, you'll be exposed instantly. And so the periodization... It almost helps us to understand for this period, for this time in the world, knowing that those borders may blur, right? Because I think as an early modernist, you've, you, you approach sources in, in some similar ways as I do. And in other ways, not so much because you're yeah. dealing with a print culture, right? Um, a more literate population. Yeah. Um, less religious population. Less religious population, right? Uh, but I think it prepares people to say, if you want to do Greco-Roman history, here are the things you need to be able to do. You have to actually be able to read and understand poetry. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, you can't do ancient Greek history and just avoid the poetry. Right. You have to be able to appreciate and understand verse. That's a skill that you probably don't need studying other periods. So I think the periodization is good for uh, giving us civilization reference points. We can talk to each other about it. We can understand the past. But also for study, it helps us uh, narrow down on what are the things we need to understand this time in the world. And I, I would say we also can't end this without saying there is a negative side to this. Um, what we have just discussed and what we've been discussing is largely history and historiography through kind of good intentions. Um, but it's worth pointing out that, especially in the past, but you, see, you still see it in the present, periodization is also a way of sorting and not sorting in a way that, that is uh, well-intentioned. It's sorting in the sense of saying this history matters, these people matter, and these people didn't. And generally, especially in Anglophone historiography, that is the privileged, the male, the white, the Western European, and, and in Anglophone history, the British and American, prejudiced and centered to the exclusion or the minimization of others. Uh, whether that's the other of class or race or culture or time. 
Um, so one of the problems of periodization we often run into, and this is tr more true, I think, the further you go back in time, uh, periodization often revolves around elites. So who are the elites? What dynasty is in charge? Uh, you know, what, what emperor is on the throne in Rome? And as we do more history from below, which is largely a 20th century phenomenon that continues to the present, we learn that maybe those periodizations don't work for common people because what happens with elites sometimes doesn't touch common people, and particularly in ways that are, that are um, large-scale changes. And so if, if you think about the experience of somebody in Western Europe post-Diocletian, because Diocletian's uh, civil and land reforms do touch the common people, uh, through a good chunk of the medieval and early modern periods, their, their experience largely doesn't change. I mean, and we can certainly debate that. But if you periodize by the common person, just to pick one of those categories, then it looks very different. Uh, never mind the many misuses of history we've seen, um, where people have looked back at history and tried to find, uh, you know, the the exceptional into the sometimes outright racist, um, you know, history of their own people. You know, think of the 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 Anna of Heinrich Himmler, who were trying to find these, you know, m mysterious and it turns out false Aryans in history, right? Um, so so periodization can be used as a tool in negative ways, uh, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes with, with actual malice intended. Sometimes history is presented in a way that deliberately obscures and, and minimizes people who don't deserve to have that happen to them. Yeah, well, that's the use of an abusive history, right? I mean, if you listen to what's coming out of Russia right now, the way uh, Ukrainian history is being cast, right? right? You, you read it a certain way to put it in a certain position in the world, which makes it ours, right? right? Um, if you look at, uh, to, to use, well, you already mentioned um, Himmler, so it's not, I'm not violating Godwin's law by invoking Hitler. Yeah, right. um, but, you know, the, the Third Reich, what is that all about, right? Well, we're tracking back to Charlemagne, right? And uh, everybody wants to track back to Charlemagne and everybody wants to claim things, right? I, I don't know that, though, I know what you're saying. I'm not sure that's the fault of periodization so much. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it can certainly be a tool, uh, but periodization itself is is just markers and reference yeah. points to the extent where you, you move those markers around and say, well, you know, the important things began here. Um, you can have that kind of abuse. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, I don't know. I think there is a limit to history from below um, mm -hmm. because the one thing about writing it from the perspective of the elites is it, it's much easier to do in the pre-modern period because of who the voices we have are, right? And I have colleagues who do peasant studies in medieval England and that kind of stuff. And yeah, there, there are those voices out there, but it, we have to be honest with ourselves, right? That the dominant view is from, from the literate classes. And um, the views we have of the, the, the lower classes in the past tend to be exceptional rather than diagnostic. Oh, yeah, absolutely, right? Um, but the, the common experience is so variated. I mean, it's right. so... there's. I, you're, you're talking about you know so many millions, billions of perspective points. Achieving any kind of coherence, mm -hmm. I think, is really, really difficult. At the end of the day, you have a society or civilization that has parameters. It has a law code. It has a government. It has one or more religions, right? Uh, and those are the parameters in which all those people operate, whether they want to or not, mm -hmm. right? Um, and those still remain useful markers, even though they're created, yeah, sure, by the elite, right? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the solution to that? You say, well, let's, let's um, center 
the 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 people. Okay, yeah. let's have them tell their story. How do they tell it? What happens if the people tell their story with reference to the American presidents? Right. Right. They say, well, you know, I grew up during the Obama years, and here's what I saw. Well, you're, but now they're using the marker that is common that was created by the upper yeah. right, and so I, yeah, I, I, I get it. I think I'm already in England. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, but but I do take your point. I think it's one of the values of history is correcting the historical record in the public sphere. And historians have been doing more of this with social media. I wish they weren't so um, combative Combative when they do it. I, I think it's, it's a lot of, no, I'm sorry, you know, you, you say this, but actually this happened before this, right? right? right. Um, or you spin this grand narrative, but that's it's not actually true because, because this war wasn't actually fought. That country didn't exist mm-hmm. when this war was fought, right? And the correcting of that and limiting that abuse, how best to do that? Is that in social media? Is that in popular media? Is it writing books? Is it teaching classes? Is it giving public lectures? The answer is probably all of the above and more. Um, that's I think that's an essential role of historians to say, look, there, we do have these professional parameters. Yes, some of them were cynically assembled. Right. Um, but the field can have these discussions and can say, look, according to the consensus of the field, we, we like to say, that World War II can generally be said to have begun in the 1930s. Yes, the stage was set by Versailles, and there were things, there's always preludes, right? There's always preludes. But if you want to talk about actual fighting of an actual honest-to-goodness war, it started in the 1930s. And anyone who is saying the World War II started in the 20s, we have to pull them aside and say, I'm sorry, you're just, I get it, you're talking preludes. It didn't. Right. Right. Uh, you have to have some parameters you can't intelligently talk about. Intelligently talk about. I, I think what yeah. you bring up is very important in that it's either two warnings or kind of a, a one warning with two subsets for junior historians, grad students when when we talk about these issues. Uh, one of them is to understand that the past is not set by its events or mores or leaders or as you brought up law codes. Um, and I, I'll say this in the context of something that you castigate us with frequently, which is feudalism, right? right. <laughs> there is a belief for, a, there was for a very long time that persists through the present, that feudalism was a set of carved in stone contracts that everyone abided by and followed and lived under. When the reality was, like every time period, there was a sense of a thing that was later called feudalism and that there were beliefs and practices within it, but people still acted as they saw best in any given situation. So I think for historians have to understand that a lot of this is kind of soft. Um, we don't refer to history as a science for that exact reason. There's no set... Uh, you know, World War One or World War Two did not absolutely begin on the first of September, nineteen thirty-nine. You can have a different view, and I think the other thing that you bring up, the the warning, but also the positive, is that history is a dialogue. History is about historians discussing these issues and arriving at a better view of the past. And I'm, I'm studiously avoiding using the word truth, right? Because we're not necessarily in the truth business beyond this event occurred at this time on this day in this year. That's the only truth we should deal in. And, and I think it's really important that we do that in a civil fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, because one reaction, and I know I've had this experience, you gentlemen may have as well, um, 
when you if you talk about the people and their perspective of history, very often I'll be accused of, oh, well, you're you're doing revisionist history, right? Right? You're doing you are taking one of the sacred cows that I always believed in, and you're mm-hmm. you're casting doubt on it, right? Um, and and when that happens, then there's a shutting down, right? Then historians become suspect, right? Right? And sometimes it's not it's not usually because of what we write, it's it's a lot of times just the interpersonal approach. And so when you get on there, I mean, um, our Civil War colleagues have to deal with this all the time on social media, right? The lost cause and right. cause of the Confederacy and or the renaming of the bases. And so this stuff is is active and everybody's talking about it, right? I see some people going on and they just, they basically mock anyone who brings anything up. Uh, they make fun of them. They rip on them. They take screenshots. They say, I have the receipts and, and, and we're surrounded by fill in the blank, you know, racists or union supremacists or whatever it is, right? Um, it doesn't get you anywhere, right? The people retrench into their old ideas. They accuse you, the historian, of going back and altering all these things, all the things that they grew up learning in terms of parameters and mm-hmm. historical truths. And, so. and I think approach is so important to say, look, it's, you know, and it's not enough to say afterwards, oh, I'm not attacking you. It's too late. They already feel like they've been attacked. Right. But to say, well, right, let's look at the chronology. What happened first? Oh, you have this happen first, and then this happened. Can you see there's a causal link there, right? Um, and, and we have to be really careful because at the end of the day, I tell my students at the start of every year, anyone can do history. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the uh, reserve of people with PhDs. Anyone can do it. Uh, and there is a trust factor. If you do it professionally, you should be doing it right. Um, and that's a whole other discussion yeah, thing. Yeah, but um, sure. but lately, I've just, this is something I've just been going on about. It's just the approach is so important. If you go out there all militant and, uh, you know, you're all wrong and, you know, why don't you understand history better? People are just going to stop listening to you. Yeah, and I've, I've run into this giving papers at conferences. When I was a grad student, all my conference papers were, this is absolutely what happened and this is absolutely the only thing <laughs> you mean. And now my paper theses are more like, Here's some facts that occurred that might be interesting. Yeah. Now we've we've been covering a lot of ground, right? So kind of the what's kind of like the big idea that someone should take from this? Uh, so a non-historian listening to us talk for the past hour, what's kind of the big idea about periodization, about the use of periodization uh, that uh, you would like to we'd like to leave them with? Here's what I would say. Uh, the great thing about history is that it's interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's interpretation of the recorded past. That's my definition of history, right? Um, we are always interpreting and reinterpreting, and that includes periodization. Uh, it includes looking at and saying, is that really the right cutoff date for that? Um, is, is that the beginning of something new and the leaving behind of something old? Or is that something we can have a debate about and interpret? Um, that's what makes history so fun. I think that's that's my big takeaway. So I'll give an example. I um, just taught this um, my medieval electives, right? One on the Crusades and one on Western medieval Europe. And um, one of the students I was, I was talking with, it was, it was very interesting because uh, he referenced the Renaissance, right? And I said, well, but when did, you know, when did you think the Renaissance was, right? And we had this little discussion and I pointed out, I said, actually, I think it starts much earlier than that. And he was a little surprised to have such an early date. And I pointed out, I said, well, who's the quintessential figure of the Renaissance? It's Dante. Yep. When did Dante die? 1321. 1321, which means he was born in the 1200s, right? Uh, now he's writing the Divine Comedy in 1308. He starts writing it, and um, and then he, he concludes that basically close to his death, right? But he was writing other things as well. So does that mean the Renaissance really began in the late 13th century? 
Mm-hmm. Well, when we think Renaissance, we tend to think, no, we think Italy, we think Da Vinci, or maybe we think Shakespeare later on and stuff, all this later stuff. I would say the Renaissance is much earlier than we thought. People are going to disagree and say, well, you can't base it on Dante. Great. What would you base it on? Right. And it becomes this great, awesome discussion about, well, when did the Renaissance begin? Well, what does the Renaissance mean? So we talk about humanism. We talk about individualism. Right. Um, We talk about a little bit of skepticism. Um, When does that when do you first pick up on that? Oh, well, it's only in the texts. So now we're back to your problem of the elite sources. Mm -hmm. Do we judge by the elite sources? That's a good question. And a skilled teacher, there goes an hour. in discussion, right? Because it's so endlessly fascinating. Um, And I think periodization is like anything else. Um, Setting a date and then taking a stand on it is going to bring the counter argument, which brings the discussion and you end up learning something. Um, My student learned, oh, Dante's a lot easier, a lot lot, lot earlier than I thought he was. Um, Okay, let's talk about Italy after Dante, right? Um, it's ultimately a learning process. And I think periodization is good because it gives you parameters and then you can argue about those parameters. Um, and at the end of the day, you can put something in a textbook that helps somebody comprehend the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing that the next textbook, you might have to change it a little bit, but the goal is the same. Like you say, categorize it, streamline it, so it's comprehensible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that Socratic aspect of it, and, and I'm avoiding the Hegelian aspect because the Hegelian dialogue would lead to a new truth. Whereas the Socratic is just about the dialogue. I think that's really important in history. Uh, I would add to that a caution, which is for people to examine the periodizations that they use, even without necessarily realizing it. Um, I picked on the long 18th century one earlier. I would add to that a more common one, which is Victorian. Um, it's, It's hard to say a periodization is wrong. The reason I would say to be careful with that one is the Victorian age only took place in the spaces where Victoria was the reigning monarch, right? And if you want to include America in that, you might have a case, but America during the, I'm doing air quotes, Victorian age is very different from the places where Victoria was actually the monarch. Um, And of course, there is no Victorian age in a place like France, much less a place, you know, that's not in any way connected to England. Um, And two, Often people misunderstand what they mean by Victorian. They actually mean Edwardian. They think turn of the 20th century when they mean Victorian. Victoria, of course, died right at the, I think it was 1900, 1904. Um, So I think people need to be careful. They need to interrogate the periodizations that they use to examine if they could be done better and if they're applicable. And as I said earlier, if they're being used deliberately or incidentally to be exclusionary. And I think that takes us back to that civil dialogue that Dr. Hostler talked about. Mm-hmm. That's, that is the core of what we do, is to be able to sit down with somebody and to walk away from that discussion still disagreeing with them, but having learned from it. Um, and that's a, uh, that is perhaps uh, shouting into the whirlwind of modern political discourse. But, you know, it is what it is. And, and I think that there is a great value to that. Um, and I would add to that... Um there's, there needs to be a dose of humility in all of this yeah. to realize that as we talk about these things, um, that it is that the rest of the world is in many ways very different and operates along different lines. And there's much we don't understand. And when someone says, look, that doesn't really apply to a place like India, right? right? To step back and say, oh, okay, I guess, you know, when I think about it, I don't really know much about pre-modern India. Say, well, you know, there, when we say Renaissance, right, to get back to my Dante idea, when we say Renaissance, that is a European-centered phenomenon. But the Indian Renaissance 
is during the Gupta period that we would correlate with late Rome, mm -hmm. right? The Gupta Empire, that's when you have a flowering of, of Hindu culture. Um, it's, it's one of these great books and these, um, um, these uh, romances and these heroic stories are written mm -hmm. down. Um, that's the bubbling. And so you say, when you even just use a word Renaissance, it means different right. things in different places. Um, and just to just understand it, like, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know there was an Indian Renaissance. Mm -hmm. Huh. Well, tell me more about that. Is it, was it like the Renaissance in Italy? Was it different? Um, yeah, these discussions is always a little bit of saying, being able to say, oh, I didn't know that. Now let me take my predisposition. And let me see if it's been moved at all right. by that new knowledge. Yes, why, no, you know, why not, and, and go forward from there. And to interrogate, to take that a step beyond, to interrogate why we are wedded to the models we have. And if it matters to be wedded to the models we have, right. it can, but it also can't. What's right? at stake? Right. You know, what, what is the, if you lose it, you know, people come and say, you're doing revisionist history, right? Uh, what happens if we lose that? Right. Uh, you know, whatever that sacred cow I'm taking down or think I'm taking down, you know, um, what's what's the consequence? Does it matter? I have my students do a, um, uh, they did historiographical briefs in the medieval warfare class about things like the stirrup controversy, right. the longbow debate, feudalism, right? And I, I had them essentially say, tell me what the debate is. Tell me what the major camps are, right? Um, and then tell me what you think, mm -hmm. right? You know, where do you fall? And then what are the stakes? So what? Was the longbow a massive killer or not? Yeah. What does it matter if it was or if it wasn't? Well, and they, and they did a really nice job saying, well, here's how it matters, right? This is how we view the past. This is how we view warfare. This is our predispositions going in. Um, and that stake question is really, really crucial. At the end of the day, does it really matter if we know exactly when the end of the Middle Ages arrived? Right. I would say whether you pick Constantinople or Columbus or Martin Luther, you could say that that stretch of time had a lot of really interesting changes that were going on uh, that changed the fabric of Europe. Yeah. They just did. Is one more important than the other? That's a debate. But I think all three of them are, are pretty important yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, it's clearly something we could talk about for hours. Um, but this has been a fascinating discussion. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank, thank you. you. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.